How do you help someone who doesn't want help? How do you help someone who doesn't want help? A few things that we should be aware of this morning as we start. Uh, first of which, uh, the Bulldogs are national champions again. I went to the University of Minnesota, Duluth. Secondly, over the last couple of weeks, we've had an anonymous uh, prayer card, comment card come in. And just so you know, we read them, you know, and pray for them. But this one card was particularly distressing because an individual said that they, they found it difficult to stand through the songs. And I just want you to know from my heart of hearts, if you can't stand during a song, you can, it's okay. You can sit. God still loves you. I love you. We love you. Lee loves you. We love you. Yeah, I got that response in the first service too. And I thought in my brain it would be a lot funnier in the second, but I guess not. So it was uh, fall of 2015, right? Hurricane uh, Joaquin. Hurricane Joaquin is making its way. Actually, it's a tropical depression. Is making its way in the Caribbean. And uh, in the midst of that, the El Faro, which was captained by Michael Davidson, leaves Jacksonville, Florida, en route with a load of cargo to San Juan, Puerto Rico. Now, initially, the weather forecast headed as a tropical depression. It was a named storm, Joaquin, and it intensified to a Category 1 storm. But based on the track and based on the forecasting that Captain Davidson had at his disposal, the view was is that it would stay further north, and so he went to the south with the hope and goal of going around it. The crazy thing about it is that uh, the storm intensified, the storm changes direction and goes from a relatively mild, if you want to think of it that way, Category 1 storm to a, a monster, a Category 3 storm. And each attempt that El Faro made with Captain Davidson at the helm to maneuver around the storm, the storm just seemed to pursue them. So that they found themselves on the morning... Uh, Thursday morning, October 1st, entering the eye wall of a Category 3 storm. And, and, and nothing, lives, nothing lives through that. They sent out a distress signal at 7 a.m., and within 39 minutes, the ship was gone, as were the crew, 32 plus the captain himself. In the current issue of Vanity Fair, there's this intense intense article written about it. And what they've done is they've actually visited the wreck of the El Faro. They've recovered the bridge data recorder and have produced a, a manuscript over the last 29 hours of what was going on. And the intensity is just absolutely unbelievable. The text today is in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. You'll find that on page 946. What are the things that are important to you? I mean, truly, what are the things that are important to you? And are things that are important to you a matter of perspective? So Jason Gay, who is a columnist, Jason Gray, who's rather a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and the sports page, writes about two significant worldwide sporting events that conclude today. 
One of them is the Masters, and that is probably the better known of the two events. One is the Perry Robay, which is this intense bicycle race over cobblestones. And as much as Jason Gray enjoys golf, he is drawn to the Perry Robay, if for no other reason than the trophy that they give you. So at the end of the Masters, they give you this cute little green jacket, a nice little bit of clothing that you would wear to a dinner party. At the end of the Perry Robay, they give you a rock. One of the cobblestones lifted out of the course, presented as your trophy for winning. You might argue, well, the Masters is a bigger test. The Perry Robay is a bigger test. You might say they're not even comparable. But what are the things that are important and of critical importance to you? Is there an issue of perspective? Keeping those thoughts in mind, turning to the text, Paul starts, brothers, we would argue, brothers and sisters, the little footnote will even tell you that, brothers and sisters, he's writing to the church at Rome, right? Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the them are his brothers and sisters by virtue of DNA. Okay, so he's talking about the Jews, right? Brothers and sisters in Rome, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his brothers and sisters, DNA relatives, is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a real, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. How do you help someone who doesn't want help? Now, with Paul writing these words, you can't escape his own dramatic story. And if you don't know it, you'll want to check out Acts, the book of Acts, chapters 7, 8, and 9. It's absolutely incredible. Suffice it to say, these four verses are an encapsulated version of what happens over three chapters. It is the high points that Paul is expressing. And Paul prays to God in writing to the church at Rome. He prays for the very thing that happened to him to happen to those that he loves. His blood relatives, his brothers and sisters. If you've ever wished something for someone else, then you understand Paul's perspective. If you've ever wanted someone that you love to realize something that is life-changing, something that is true, something that is the most true, then you understand Paul's perspective. Paul can identify this group of people whose DNA is not unlike his own, and, and he has this heart that calls, that wants for them that wants for them what he has discovered. How do you help someone who doesn't want help? As cliche as it might seem, Paul gives the nuts and bolts of how you help someone who doesn't want help in this text. It's cliche because it's expressed in two major areas, desire for them to come to faith and prayer about them coming to faith. And it's cliche, right? Because these concepts of desire and prayer or thoughts and prayers 
are something that our society today has seized upon and, and, and they kind of frisbee them out whenever something bad happens. Our thoughts and prayers are with these people. Not that it isn't true, but then we look at the people who say, oh, our thoughts and prayers are with these people and we're like, really? And somehow the use in the common vernacular, I think, lessens the impact But just because that may or may not be true doesn't escape the reality. How do you help someone who doesn't want help? Paul expresses it. He has this urgency. He has this desire that the people that he knows, that he loves deeply, he has this burn inside of them for their lives, for their souls. And he prays for them. This idea of prayer, again, can seem cliche. Oh, I'm praying for you. Really? Are you really praying? Am I really praying? When I say to someone, I'm praying for you, then I ought to be praying for them. Or don't say it. And if I'm praying for an individual, then I ought to pray with everything that I have for them. Not that I have to be exhausted, laying on the ground, totally wiped out. but that I pray for them. That I actually do the thing that I say that I'm going to do. And in talking about this concept of a person coming to faith, which Paul is addressing, do I really desire that someone that I know who doesn't know, do I really desire that they come to know? Do I really pray with desire for that someone that I know who doesn't know that they would come to know? It's not cliche if we actually do it. It's not cliche if we think about the people who exist in our sphere of influence, whether they be family or friend or business associates, to desire, if they don't know Christ, that they come to know Christ. And to make that pursuit, that they would pursue Christ, that they would come to know Christ, a matter of our prayer life, that we pray to God on a frequent basis. For their eyes to see something that not is only true, but is the most true thing. I mean, Paul easily could walk away from this, right? He could easily say, you know, if you don't want this, he he could even have a mild case of schadenfreude. I love the word schadenfreude. It has to be one of my favorite words. Cloaked, cloaked joy. But Paul's heart won't let go. He won't let go of his desire and his prayers for those who don't know. On the positive side, they got passion. Verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's kind of like an Indiana Jones movie. I'll say this, kid. You got a lot of heart. 
they got passion. In fact, you might argue it's one of their strengths, but like any strength that gets overused, it certainly, it certainly can become misguided, if not a downright weakness. They have a passion, but the information that their passion is based on isn't complete information. Or they lack the ability to believe the complete information that has been given to them. Paul's argument, as the court of law in the United States of America argues, ignorance really is an excuse. Not knowing does not absolve you from responsibility. When Captain Davidson flies into the teeth of a Category 3 storm, we wonder why in the world did this happen? And there's a number of different things that contributed to a poor decision-making process, not the least of which was bad information. Captain Davidson was basing his course, um, his, 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 his run line, if you will, to San Juan based on weather information that was 6 to 12 hours old. It was based on storm estimates that didn't have Joaquin moving to a Category 3 storm. It was based on the fact that one of the key instruments on the ship to, uh, to measure wind speed was not operating. He had bad information. It's amazing how many times it's what you don't know that can kill you. Now I'd be the first to say, not every decision that we come to in life is life and death. Not every decision has the weight of of, of piloting a ship around a hurricane. And so we often get away with this sense of, I know all that I need to know. I have all the information that I need. I have enough experience. Davidson was experienced beyond belief. Safety was his absolute zenith goal. He had been a captain on the Pacific Northwest, the waters off of Alaska. He had seen crazy, crazy water. I mean, we can get to this place. We can have this proclivity to embrace self. So easy to think that for whatever reason, I'm the authority. I've got this figured out. And we allow that confidence to give us a false sense of security. Now, please understand, I'm not saying we shouldn't be confident. No, be confident. But am I willing to balance that confidence with modesty? Am I willing to balance that confidence with being teachable? Am I willing to admit that maybe I don't have it all figured out? Am I willing to say, you know, I don't think I'm looking at this from the right perspective? See, the challenge that Paul is addressing in the folks that have the same DNA as he does is that they have so involved themselves in the righteous self that they have created this standard for themselves, that when they judge their lives against their own self-created standard, they look pretty good. 
And Paul argues it's a pretty big problem when it comes to a truly significant issue like life and death. There's also a relational aspect to this. If you bump into someone who is so into the righteous self, that they're so into their own standard, and they're so into judging you based on their standard, which always makes them look good and always makes you look bad, it's not much fun to be around. It's really kind of a buzzkill. No one really likes a know-it-all. How do we solve it? I suppose I could give you a list of things to do. I guess we could create that list. It might even be helpful. But then wouldn't that list just be the pursuit of John's selfless, righteous self? And the very thing that Paul's arguing against is that it's not a list. Although there are some things that would be on the list. And here's where it gets tricky, because a lot of us will go into this perspective with, if I just do the right things, i.e. do the things on the list, I'll be okay in God's eyes. Christianity Today has this article, Lord Have Mercy on Us, in which they relay the research done by Lifeway Research. Surveying United States citizens, United States individuals, individuals who live in the United States of America, Americans, man, a living. Sometimes the phrase doesn't come out. They asked a representative sample of Americans and found that two out of three confess, say yes, to being a sinner, 67%. The other 33%, listen to this. Eight of those, 8% of those, really don't see themselves as sinners. 10% of those don't think sin exists. 15% would prefer not to answer the question. I love that. Are you a sinner? I'd really, I really don't want to answer that question. Not interested in any way, shape, or form. Okay, a second question was asked. Can you earn your way into heaven with good deeds? 52% of your countrymen agreed, saying, yeah, if you do enough good stuff, that's the way you get to heaven. Paul's like, no, no. That's just the list. That's just the list. But it's not to say that doing good isn't important. It does become an issue of order, an issue of priority. See, if we put the, the list first, if I do enough good, then God will like me, that doesn't work. If I do God first, a relationship with God, where I accept his gift of salvation as a gift, and out of that, good behavior results? Yeah. See, if you put the list first, it's kind of like doing everything right and still dying. Have you ever been at a place in a job where you did everything right or most everything right or the majority of everything right? I mean, on a given day, you did 51% right. So you did more right than wrong, but you still got fired. And you're like, why did I get fired? I did. I, 51% was right. And your employer's like, yeah, but you're ni nice to be around. It's not the 51% that gets you in. It's the 49% that gets you out. 
So yeah, you can do a lot of things right and still end up in a bad, bad situation. So order is important. God first by faith, then the list of behavior. Priority is important. God first by faith, then the list. And Paul argues that the whole thing is in the pursuit of Christ. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end. Sometimes it's translated goal, G-O-A-L, goal. And if you have a great theological mind, there is this amazing discussion about the Greek fineries between end and goal. We're not going to go there today. If you want to go there, reach out to Dr. Schreiner or Dr. Bruce or Dr. Moo. But suffice to say, their discussion and our discussion end up in the same place. And it's where Paul ends up, with Christ. Christ is everything. Christ is the only thing. Christ, knowing Christ is everything. Knowing Christ is the only thing. The example of Christ is the example for all of life. And Paul makes the argument, this is the end. This is where we want to get to. And so to get to that point, think about life in reverse. Your money, it's a temporary thing. Your, your house, it's a temporary thing. Your car is a temporary thing. The watch on your left arm, the ring on your left finger, the ring around your collar. They're all short terms, especially on the last one if you have a good relationship with crystal cleaners. <laughs> short term things. Yet we're so tempted to live our lives moving towards those short-term things. If the pursuit of wealth was the most important thing, then one would order their life on the pursuit of wealth to attain the pursuit of wealth. If the pursuit of property, if the pursuit of kids looking the right way, if the pursuit of influence. Some people really like influence. They like influence in the professional world. They like influence in the political world. And so they'll do anything they can to gain that influence. It's temporary. It's all temporary. Not that these things aren't important. Not that we shouldn't be involved in politics and not that we shouldn't be involved in the marketplace. But they're temporary. They're going to go away. Christ is the end. Christ is everything. And if that is true, then how do our lives fit into that reality? How do I think about life? How do I execute life in light of the fact that Christ is the end? So the question with which we started... How do you help someone who doesn't want help? Do you ever think God asks that question of you or of me? Please pray with me. Father, we come to be challenged by your word.
And we invite your spirit to do something that only your spirit can do. We certainly pray for those that we know, Father, who don't know you. We pray for our family and our friends who are making decisions that, quite frankly, we, we just wish they would stop. We pray for an understanding of how to help someone who doesn't want help. But Father, we also acknowledge that we probably are the person who doesn't want help. And that if we were more teachable and more honest and less self-confident, less self-righteous, our hearts might be changed and our lives might be transformed. And we might live in such a way that reflects you as the goal, reflects Jesus as the end. Father, work powerfully in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name.